Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Dennis Kitchen is the man of the hour, but with his reputation, his career might be the man of five hours, Jimmy. I was going to say this intro could go long. <laughs> uh, founder of Kitchen Sink Press, which introduced me to a ton of independent alternative cartoonists. Uh, represents Will Eisner, Art Sells, literary agent. Harvey Kurtzman co-authored The Art of Harvey Kurtzman. Great book. An Eisner and Harvey Award winner. Yes, and a great book. Uh, longtime cartoonist going back to the days of the underground with Mom's Homemade Comics. His comics have also appeared in a number of comic, or a number of various places like Playboy, High Times, Arcade, Bijou Funnies. Uh, I believe we've actually looked at some of those issues with him. So a guy who has done just about everything there is to do in comics, and we are going to touch on as much of that as we can here today. For sure. Thanks for coming by, Dennis. Oh, my pleasure. In in preparation for this, uh, I was taking a look online, seeing what whatever resources I could find. You know, got some great materials to support the conversation here. But I happened upon that uh, that appearance that you did about 1989 on uh, Larry King Live, huh. and it was some kind of like goofball, Erzatz, <laughs> Frederick Wortham wannabe kind of fella who was who was on there yeah. with you. Yeah. Have you yeah. have you Googled that guy recently? Yeah, he's in prison. <laughs> Apparently he was uh, molesting his own patients, uh, taking advantage of them. So, yeah, I, I'm not shocked. He was a strange fellow yeah, uh, who, it, who really hated comics. So... Uh, I mean, what what can we say? It's worth it's worth getting that piece on the record, man, because uh, <laughs> yeah. these these misguided do-gooder guys, especially when you look as wet and slimy as that fella, talking about uh, you know how comics are going to bring about you know the collapse of Western civilization, and yeah. and uh, he's a Pennsylvanian as well, man. One of the guys that the feds looked at overprescribing lots and lots of uh, pills. Yeah, if any of your uh, listeners are curious, his name was Doctor Thomas Radecki. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that whole uh, that whole thing with Larry King is probably on YouTube, right? That's yeah, that's where, where I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Frank Miller calls in. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I mentioned this in the intro, but uh, founder of the CBLDF, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, in 1990. So makes sense why you might be there debating the merits of comics uh, with this this modern Frederick Wortham. Did the CBLDF exist when you when you uh, participated in that or? Well, I think the CBLDF started in 86. What year was that? I don't recall. Oh, that was way later. Yeah, it was 89 or something on the TV. Yeah, so some overlap. Dick, dick. So, like, uh, we have this first 25 years book, Dennis Kitchen, uh, you know, Kitchen Sink Press. And it, it starts off, first off, you were drafted, man. Like, uh, yeah, so during the Vietnam War. Yep. Jesus Christ, man, that's scary as hell. Uh, you, you always hear about, you know, the, the hippie cartoonists kind of figuring out their ways around that sort of thing, but but they got you, man. They, they, they pulled your ticket. Yeah, they grabbed me for 22 days. <laughs> if we're starting way in the beginning, you made zines whenever you were uh, in school, like elementary school through high school. Uh, how did you get involved in making zines at that young of an age? It's really hard to explain. I had no awareness of any other zines. I just had, I don't know, this internal journalist in me, I guess. It was a way to draw and write and entertain my classmates, basically. And uh, so I created this thing. At first, I don't even remember the name, but 
I just it was a one-off and I would pass it around class and sometimes it never came back which <laughs> drove me crazy so I decided to call it kleptomaniac because I knew there was a one in the class who was stealing it <laughs> and then it got shortened to klepto and it ended up uh, going I don't know 20 some issues into high school and eventually I I uh, started uh, using a hectograph machine, and uh, so I would sell them for a nickel apiece, which back then was, you know, decent money. You could, you could buy a big old candy bar for a nickel back in those days. And uh, in retrospect, I mean, it was just a kid having fun, but it taught me all the basics that really are uh, requirements in publishing. Uh, it, it, it was an early lesson just in the economics of publishing, in distribution, in pleasing an audience. Uh, it, it allowed me to kind of hone my skills in terms of what's funny, what's taken the wrong way, what's dangerous, what's going to cause the teachers to confiscate it. A lot of politics and practical things mixed up. And so while I was only 13 or so when I started, it really uh, gave me some important life lessons that, you know, when I became a publisher, I, I have to kind of tip my hat to those early days. Those old uh, hecto machines, man. How, how many copies could you turn out before before it burns out? Like 50, 100? Around, like around 50, and then they'd start to fade. Um, I, I The secretary of the principal took a liking to me and offered... Uh, it to me after school so it was never truly authorized but uh, but you know she was a, a nice lady her, one of her daughters was my classmates and I think uh, she was just trying to help but it, it was a big help we're looking right here at, at the creatures from the subconscious hmm. book that contains so much of your artwork tell us about this well, that's my newest book. It just came out from Tinto Press in uh, Denver. A guy named Ted Intorsio did a great job uh, putting it together. Basically, I call these chipboards because they're all drawn on that substance. The printers call chipboard. The sure. average person probably doesn't know. It's kind of a it's it's the back of a of a notebook, you know. Yeah. And uh, I love the surface, and I love using a, a plain old Sharpie marker along with maybe a, a thinner pen. And with those two, I just start with a blank sheet, and I just start drawing without any forethought whatsoever. So everything you see in this book, there was no planning. You can't pencil on chipboard. It's just spontaneous. And... If you make a mistake, you're screwed. So I like that it's dangerous in a way. I like that my subconscious just speaks for better or worse. So as I'm doing them, I'm really entertaining myself because I have no idea what's happening until I maybe, I don't know, a third or halfway through, then inevitably my conscious mind recognizes, you know, what kind of a creature, person, thing it is and then it's kind of a it's hard to decide describe this but it's kind of a collaboration then between the conscious and unconscious mind and then I finish it but they just start out I have no idea do you uh, start off with the same thing like the eyeball or the head or something like that or could it be different all the um, time not necessarily I mean I guess the thing I start out most commonly with oddly enough is an ear when it's going to be a creature or a human. 
but a lot of times it's just a squiggly line or a straight line or a curve line and I just watch my hand just start turning it into a curve and a twist or whatever and and then it might suggest a horn to me it might suggest whatever I, I honestly <clears throat> I can't really describe the process but I think other, other artists who are curious might want to try it because it really stems from the original surrealistic movement back when you know Salvador Dali and all of his peers were just interpreting dreams basically so so that's why the title of this one is called creatures from the subconscious what's so fascinating looking through this is the weight and balance distribution of all the characters and, and creatures that you're drawing it the balance feels sound extremely sound you know it's it's so hard to believe that it wasn't sort of pre-planned stuff man but that just speaks to your <clears throat> your skill yeah, it feels well, like you know it's it's the exact opposite. If I'm <clears throat> if I'm doing a comics page, of course I will plan it in advance. I'll generally have a script. I will pencil it. It's all very carefully planned and directed. And so this is exactly the opposite. It's an unfriendly surface, and it's uh, like I said, it's uh, it's spontaneous, and I like that. So. I feel like my drawing is a balance between those two and doing these freeform drawings is liberating in a way and it, it increases my confidence. I think all all artists probably have some degree of we could call it insecurity. Yeah, that's that's the word I think I want here and and uh, so if you start doing these freeform things and you haven't planned them and you you don't rely on uh, inking your own pencils or whatever it starts to bolster your confidence and so at least for me it works but you know everyone's different i know you guys are both cartoonists i've i've seen and admired your own work jim you and i were both in that little nemo book yes uh, ed i think the last time i saw you in person we were on a panel in uh, miami, miami. Yeah, 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 for sure. Right Hip hop book, and even as a even as a kid, uh, when you would come to Pittsburgh, you were always very, very encouraging. And uh, when a cartoonist is getting started, and you're sending submissions out, uh, it was sort of at the end of of kitchen sink press, like the comics part. You know, the the new adventures of of spirit and things were were coming out around the time when I was sending out submissions to all the publishers. And you were so nice. Like the, the very first thing that a cartoonist gets is a personal rejection. You know, like that's that's the first like good step in a cartooning right. career is you get the personal rejection. That's not boilerplate. You send a very encouraging note, and uh, it was so nice. It was like it was like, listen, man, I'm almost I'm almost done with this. But if it was ten years ago, it would have been no question. And just that nice little note, whether you meant it or not, <laughs> did not matter to like a young cartoonist to just hear a nice thing from a publisher you respect because that's just a little bit more gas in the tank to just kind of keep going so so i i will always uh, yeah. appreciate that from you man well that's nice to hear ed yeah you know <clears throat> not many publishers started as cartoonists so right it always gave me <clears throat> a little bit of an edge in that i understood what it was like and um i did want to let people down easy if uh, 
if we couldn't use their work. And, you know, 90% of what comes over the transom is usually just pretty amateurish. But there's that 10% where it's almost there. You can see somebody who is really, maybe really good at some things, weak at others. And so I would always try to, as diplomatically as possible, <clears throat> encourage them to work on things that were weaknesses, like maybe the lettering was terrible or the art was really good, but the story sucked or whatever. Give them something specific so they could work on it. And then if you got another submission, you could see it maybe it was incrementally better or maybe it was good enough that you'd say, hey, let's put them in the next snarf. I think they've made the cut, you know. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, in baseball, you don't just jump right to the majors. There's a minor leagues and you move up the chain and you're in AAA and you're on the cusp. Cartooning's a lot like that. You see a lot of guys uh, and women in AAA and they just need a little bit extra to kind of make the cut. But one company's cut will be different than another's, you know. That That is an interesting thing about the publishers. They they certainly are a brand, uh, just like, you know, the great record labels. There, there's, there is a brand element to that. Uh, I'm curious about the, the, the 1% of submissions that come in when a Mark Schultz shows up <laughs> and, and, and sends a package of uh, materials, man. That's true. Once in a while, yeah, you, you see a fully developed... Uh, submission or very close to it and you just go jump on that guy are, are there some names that come to mind besides Schultz? well i mean mark's an obvious one he told me later he had submitted to i think about a half a dozen publishers and kitchen sink was the only one who answered and i thought well what's wrong with these people part of it i think is the companies get bigger people who actually open mail are low level maybe interns or young uh, employees who really don't have a fully developed eye they also aren't in a position to make a decision and so one advantage at kitchen sink i always took submissions seriously even knowing that roughly 90 percent we're not going to be really even close but dave schreiner my editor and i always made a point of taking part of one day a week and we just go through the what publishers call the slush pile and we kind of divide it, you know, these need a nice personal reply and these probably can get by with the form letter. But even the form letter had different boxes to check. So it wasn't just a get lost kid. It was, you know, you might check box six, which is whatever. So, I mean, to me, it was just the right thing to do. And I think some publishers just didn't care about developing talent or they felt they had so many connections already with proven professionals that uh, they didn't need to watch the double A or triple A guys. Yeah. Looking at uh, mom's mom's uh, homemade comics, number one <laughs> coming off the yeah. presses uh, right, <laughs> right here, which is incredible. 4,000 copies well, of that. When you have a name like Kitchen, you got to play with that pun, right? <laughs> Listen, man, I'm surprised you you called your your company Crups for a while. Like with a, I was going to say, like with a name like Kitchen, like you got to lean into that. Well, Krupp was the uh, umbrella corporation. Kitchen Sink was always the trademark on the comics right from the beginning. Yeah, but I had partners early on, and uh, you know we had uh, we had our hands in different things. So Krupp was that umbrella. Check this out, Jimmy. With consignment sales in Milwaukee head shops and drugstores, 
that alleviated 3,500 copies of that 4,000 copy print run. And the final 500, you had your homeboy take it to uh, to the West Coast, Same, presumably yeah. to distribute it around, but Gary Arlington's the dude that's like, nah, give me all 500. Yep. And that, that right there, that signifies, that is proto Phil Suling direct market comic book distribution. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, Gary Arlington, I think, his shop was the first in the country. You can double check that, but he was a pioneer of his own and he was in uh, San Francisco, which, you know, was really the, the Mecca of underground comics. I was an outlier in that I was in Wisconsin, but uh, Gary was able to move 500 copies of an unknown comic, which itself is pretty amazing. It is. Um, I did, of the 4,000, about 3,000 sold in Milwaukee. Another one of my roommates took 500 to Woodstock that he was going to sell for me. But as you no doubt know, Woodstock was a mess, and they, I think they parked something like a mile or two away from the event. And they had to lug this big carton of uh, comic books. And by the time they got to Woodstock, my roommate said uh, he and his friend were kind of exhausted and <laughs> and i and i think they also probably were on acid or some <laughs> other drug and the bottom line is he apologized later and he said look we never sold any but we gave them all away to grateful hippies so so between the west coast and the east coast you know a thousand disappeared but What's astonishing to me is I was able to sell 3,000 in my own neighborhood. And that just tells you what it was like in those early hippie days when there was a hunger for literature by your peers. And there was very little. You had underground newspapers popping up everywhere, but comics were still really rare. I mean, comics that spoke to its audience. And so to find 3,000 or so, you know, long-haired uh, kindred spirits on the east side of Milwaukee. As time goes by, I'm more impressed with that than ever. Because as you know, a lot of people who are self-publishing, they're, they're astonished if they can sell 3,000 in the whole country. Right. You know, it's a, it's a tough thing to do. It's, it's such a fascinating time period that late 60s era across pop culture period uh, I, th I think about that that book uh, easy, easy riders, riders raging, raging bulls. bulls how <laughs> how you know cecil b demille is still making movies and dennis kitchen looking <laughs> motherfuckers are like i don't want to watch that shit <laughs> so it's you know it's, it's stan and jack making comics you need to get some different pov and you guys you guys did that Dennis, what do you take away from like like you have that success on your first comic? Where do you go from there? You know, like maybe you're surprised by selling three thousand. What's the next move? Well, what happened was that same roommate who drove the five hundred out to San Francisco, he went to uh, to see uh, Printment and uh, Rip Off and Last Gasp because the idea was I didn't really want to be a publisher. I wanted to be a cartoonist. And uh, so Ripoff was just starting, and those guys didn't even want to talk. They were just kind of fresh from Texas and starting their own operation. He didn't get a good impression from, uh, I'm trying to think. Last Gasp actually came a little later. They were not even a contender. So it came down to Printmint, 
And they jumped on it. They said, sure, we'll reprint this, and if he wants to do another one, we'll publish it. So I had a publisher. So number two was done by the print mint, and uh, things would have been fine. I would have enjoyed my career, however long it lasted, as a 100% full-time cartoonist. But the problem was I wasn't getting communication. I wasn't getting accounting. I, I, I was kind of in the dark, especially being so far from the West Coast. <clears throat> and um, eventually I did get a check in the mail, but there was nothing with it. And it just seemed to me, <clears throat> and I never signed a contract with Printment, but there was just this vague understanding of it was going to be a fair deal and we're all hippies, so you're not going to rip me off, right? But I still didn't like the idea. I just got a check. And so I called and Bob Rita answered the phone. And I said, hey, you know, thanks for the check, but there was nothing with it that told me how many you printed, how many sold, stuff like that. Uh, remind me, you know, what percentage am I getting? We didn't really have anything in writing. And after I, you know, unloaded on him, he said, so uh, you calling me a crook? And I hadn't called to tell him he was a crook. I just called a kvetch and basically say, hey, you know, give me a proper accounting. But he got very defensive and then I got very defensive. And after I hung up, I thought, you know, the guy kind of acted like a crook. He never gave me the information I asked for. He never mailed anything later that said, hey, we printed 10,000, you got 10%. That's all it would have taken. And I would have said, hey, thanks, man. I wasn't asking for verification. I just wanted a simple accounting. So after that call, I just decided, fuck those guys. And I said, I self-published the first one successfully. I'll do it again. And by then, I had gotten to know Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson in Chicago. And when I told Jay about it, he said, yeah, you know, we don't like those guys either. We don't really trust them either. So he said, if you're going to be doing your own book again, would you do Bijou as well? And that was like you know, out of left field. I didn't expect that. And I'll never forget, I, when Jay asked me that, I said the stupidest thing in the world. I said, sure, I can do that, Jay. Two's as easy as one. It didn't even make sense. Two's <laughs> not as easy as one, right? It's, it's twice but as hard. <laughs> what it was, was I, I, I really had a lot of self-confidence and I thought, I like these Chicago guys. I, I'll do the same with them as I did with mine, and I'll make sure they get a proper accounting because it was the golden rule. Having been treated the way I was by Printment, I didn't want Jay and Skip and their crew to think I was just another Printment. So right from the beginning, I pledged to be very conscientious, and, um, and that was the beginning. And um, it just grew like Topsy, and... Uh, Next thing I know, instead of a 100% cartoonist, I'm a 90% publisher. Well, this brings us to a great point, because I am fascinated, I think Ed, you are too, of like that head shop distribution. You know, we sometimes refer to it as prototype of, of the direct market, but also it's before our time. So how do you then, you've got a couple of comic books published, how do you distribute those at that time? Well... <clears throat> I had the advantage in 1970 of also co-founding a um, Milwaukee-based underground weekly called The Bugle, Bugle American, actually. 
That came from J. Jonah Jameson's Bugle, by the way. <laughs> sure. And um, so I co-founded that with four others, uh, three of whom I'd gone to journalism school with. So we were card-carrying journalists, but we were also pot-smoking hippies, and we loved the idea of the alternative press. And so <clears throat> I was balancing basically half of my time that, half my time with the incipient comics company, and um, I realized that um, I had a, a built-in advantage with the Bugle because it was a member of what was called the Underground Press Syndicate. And what that meant was if you joined, you were automatically uh, sending comp copies of your paper to all the others, and you could reprint any article or cartoon from the other papers without charge. It was a very hippy-dippy thing. And so basically it was a way to, uh, you could say, steal from other papers, borrow, whatever. But that's the way the underground papers worked. But when those exchange copies would come in the mail, my fellow partners and uh, contributors might flip through and glance at East Village Other, Berkeley Barb, and I think there were probably 50, 60 or more papers we were getting. And then they didn't care, so they would pile up. I would take them back to my apartment. I'd go through every page and look at the small ads that would say head shop or used bookstore, any place that might be an outlet. And that's how I created my first mailing list. And I would mail a catalog to them and bingo. That's amazing. That's so forward thinking. Uh, wait, as a publisher, I know that some of the underground guys, like I th I'm pretty sure the ripoff press dudes, like had their own presses. Uh, were, were you involved? Like, did you run off your own copies and things? Were you that deep? All right. We interrupt this great interview with Dennis Kitchen to pay some bills here on Cartoonist Kayfabe. Want to remind everybody that we do have a Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon now that gives you early access to all of our videos. And at the King Kayfaber level, you can actually sit in on our recording sessions, talk comics, give us some... Uh, extra ideas for these interviews with our great guests like Dennis Kitchen. Also, we are working cartoonists, so the best way to support cartoonist kayfabe is to buy our books. You see our bibliography here in front of you. My latest Street Angel Princess of Poverty is available now for pre-order. This collects all of the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive, which is available and back in print from Image Comics. Pick that up wherever you buy books. My other titles include Hulk Grand Design and The Plain Janes. Ed Piscor's upcoming books, Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus. This collects all of the Hip Hop Family Tree work along with 140 extra pages. And right now pre-orders are discounted at a nice rate. So pre-order that one now. It'll be the book of the year later this year. His other books include WYSIWYG, X-Men Grand Design, and Red Room, two volumes of which are already out. Third volume coming out shortly, Crypto Killers. Here is the cover for issue number one. Variant by Ed Piscor, variant by Jim Rugg a sketchbook blank variant, and a Peach Momoko variant. And these are available for pre-order now. And let's get back to our great guest, Dennis Kitchen. No, I very briefly thought about that. But the truth is that, and, and I learned this thankfully early on, because I think Ripoff made a big mistake, is publishers are not printers. And printers uh, normally are not publishers. They're two distinct things. And um, 
what I think the guys at Ripoff found out was they invested in this big antique press that first of all had a lot of mechanical problems and kept driving them crazy. But they became slaves to the press. They had to keep the press going. And um, what a publisher really wants is to find a reliable printer at a fair price and they do it on their time and you get the books and you don't have to deal with the mechanical side. It's one more aggravation that those guys at Ripoff had to deal with and uh, uh, I was so glad I never even considered it. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Crumb told me when they were printing Big S number one at Ripoff, he was there for a press check and he said they were doing the covers. So the covers have to go through the press four times and they have to be perfectly registered, right? So he said he was there and uh, the colors were off register. And he told the guy at the end of the press, he said, hey, you got to fix this. The colors are off register. And Robert said the guy was like evidently really high. And he looked at it and he said, oh, it looks good to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't do that. Um, I think it's a big mistake. Now, that said, you have to look at your contemporary technology always in those days it was literally big physical presses that would you know take up a huge room today you've got other options and i mean there's this thing called print on demand which is amazing if i had that back then it would have been different too you've got obviously digital distribution you've got things that are mind-boggling to me that would have been science fiction when I was starting. Yeah, we often talk about the tools that we have to, uh, you know, that we have access to now is just kind of revolutionary. Yeah. Even in the last 20 years, it's it's completely changed. And we do have examples on the channel of what Dennis just described. Uh, we did a video at uh, Jason Hamlin, retailer to the stars, his, his kind of warehouse man, and he's a big underground collector, has mm. maybe, maybe two dozen copies of like a big ass one and we look no two copies look the same <laughs> and true. some of them th these right. guys had to be high enough to look at a cover that just had the blue ink <laughs> on it and so yeah like let's put this one out to the universe exactly so you get it dennis you mentioned quite a few uh, underground cartoonists and uh and publishers there how are you guys finding each other especially you know you coming from kind of outside of San Francisco or New York area, how were you guys all finding each other and, and I don't know, trading ideas or, or what was the what was that like? Well, <clears throat> it started really with, uh, you know, Chicago and Milwaukee are only 90 miles apart. And so I got to know the Chicago guys really well. And uh, through that, the other avenues opened up. For example, I think in 1969 or 70, Crum was coming to Chicago, he stayed with Jay Lynch, and Jay called and said, hey, we're going to take the bus up to Chicago, up to Milwaukee, and I said, great. So I drove, I, I picked them up, I mean, I was a guy who drove, neither Jay nor Robert ever drove cars, so they were always dependent on buses or public distribution or somebody else with a car. But the first time Crumb visited, I had a 78 RPM jukebox in my apartment playing the kinds of music that he also loved. And so it was an instant bonding over that. 
And as we just started to get to know each other and talking about politics and life in general, we, we hit it off. And so when he left after that first trip, he said, uh, he said, I like your operation. He said, I'm going to give you my next book. And that turned out to be Homegrown Funnies. Here it is right there, man. Uh, the cool thing about this first 25 years book is, uh, at least early on, we get to see some numbers. That book sold 160,000. Uh, when, when you do a print run... You can't anticipate 160,000. Uh, so oh that's boy. that's probably over over a, a period of time. But oh, what, yeah. But what is an initial Robert Crumb print one, if, if you remember? Well, for most undergrounds, it was almost always 10,000. That was, I think, a number that started because that's when you'd got a, a really good break from the printer. And so I think early on, knowing that I had sold 4,000 of Mom's number one, mostly in my backyard, I think 10,000 just seemed like a minimum to get around the country, and it was. So a, an underground comic that sold poorly would only sell 10,000. It meant <laughs> it sold out, but it wasn't reprinted. The good ones then would be reprinted generally and also in increments of 10,000, sometimes five. But once I realized, you know, how... Crum was disproportionately selling. I think when he brought me XYZ comics, we started with 50,000. So again, it was a number I pulled out of the air. Keep in mind, this is way before the direct market system right, right. where you you would get orders in advance from a distributor. So, so you would sell comics before about, you would sell comics before you even had to publish them to a certain extent. Exactly. You had no idea. And so I would just pull a number out of the air. Um, and typically it would be, well, what can I afford? If I print 50,000 XYZ, the printer's bill is due in 30 days. Am I going to get enough money in the next 30 days to pay the printer? And uh, so I think it was that kind of uh, back of a napkin accounting. And uh, also, you know, if stuff was flying, you didn't want to have to go back and reprint. It's, it was just the drudgery of having to drive to the printer. And when I started, I was driving a hearse. So the hearse was my van. And I would drive there, fill up the hearse with comics, unload them. And that was a chore. That was the part of publishing that, you know, nobody wanted to do. And as I started to acquire partners and employees, none of them wanted to do it either. <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, if you could print more comics, just schlep them once, uh, that was easier. But there was no science to it, none whatever. Was, uh, were any of these printers, would they do the drop shipping to, to send them places, or does that come with No, later? at least, no, it was not a consideration then, and maybe I should have pursued it more, but it wasn't practical, you know, because... I mean, we would typically, a, a, a head shop would call and they'd say, you know, give me 10 of this and 20 of that and whatever. I can't have a printer fulfilling orders like that. Right. Um, so, no, right from the beginning, it was me at first. And then it was, as we grew and grew, other people were doing the order for fulfillment. But it was mostly head shops. And uh, the other thing I actually I want to mention because it gets to the era that was I want to say unique when when I started 
This is all part of, call it the uh, youth culture, the anti-war movement, uh, hippies. You, you can put different titles on it, but there was a sense of, uh, of brotherhood in a way that sounds corny to even talk about. But I'm going to give you a very specific example. When a head shop would call, I never heard of the shop. I didn't know who owned it. They would place an order. We didn't insist on prepayment. We just automatically gave them credit. And for about the first two years or so, everybody paid their bill. They might be late. Maybe they didn't pay in 30 days. They took 60 or 90, but they paid. When we finally had a customer who didn't pay, I was like beside myself. It's like, what's wrong? This guy didn't pay his bill. That's how trusting we were. You would ship merchandise to strangers on open terms and you would get paid now we all know that call it that hippie spirit didn't last forever and you know you can point to altamont or certain points in time when it was recognizably different but those early years i have to say the golden years it was great because how wonderful would it be today if you could just trust the stranger and do the same i don't think anybody would there was uh i was looking at the uh, the complete zap that fantagraphics put out and there's this great extra book with like an oral history of zap and things mm. and and uh, victor moscoso rick griffin they had a lot of experience with the uh, psychedelic posters right and and kind of getting jacked actually like the opposite of what you just said they 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 got taken advantage of as per Vic, what victor had to say so as a part of their game whenever they kind of consolidated and became, I don't know, Zap Comics LLC or whatever, Apex Novelty, whatever their company is called, mm -hmm. they controlled uh, the film. Uh, so so that like Bob Rita couldn't print up a bunch of extras without, you know, with, with that lack of accounting and things like that. Right. Uh, did, did Crumb have the films and stuff for, for <laughs> uh, Big White Man Meets Bigfoot and Homegrown Funnies? You made me laugh out loud. Crumb didn't care about any of that. Crumb was never interested in the business um at at all so no that never would have crossed his mind uh i mean i'll give you an example that proves it i when i started out and i found out the norm among underground comics publishers was a 10 percent royalty meaning 10 percent of cover price so if an underground comic had a 50 cent cover price a nickel was supposed to go to the artist for every one and uh, so, you know, the basic economics was back then we sold them for 60% off. So I would get 20 cents, a nickel would go to the artist, a nickel would go to the printer roughly, and 10 cents would cover overhead and hopefully leave a profit. But when I started, and I was a socialist, and when I heard everybody else was paying 10%, I thought, yeah. Yeah, these guys are corporate thinkers. I'm going to pay more because I'm fair. So I'm going to pay 16%. I just pull that number out of the air. So I was paying 16% of cover price, which is unheard of. And basically, I wasn't making any money. And when I got my first partner, Tyler Lancey, he looked at the books and he said, where the hell did you get this from? And I said, eh, it seemed fair to me. And he said, well, it might be fair to the artist, but it's not fair to you. If you want me to join this company, you're going to have to go with the norm. And it's the norm for a reason. That's how everything balances out. 
So he reluctantly convinced me. And uh, shortly afterwards, Crum was headed to town, and I dreaded the idea of having to tell him, because I didn't know him that well then, and I and I dreaded having to tell him that I was going to have to reduce the royalty. So he was visiting, and after a lot of hemming and hawing, I finally said, Robert, I got to level with you. My uh, my new partner, Tyler, here um, says we can't pay 16% anymore. We, we, we're going to have to go back to, to 10 and he looked at me, you know, and he said, I have no idea what you're paying me. He said, the checks go to Dana. He said, I don't really care. And that was an eye opener because I thought at least minimally he knew what the economics were and was paying some attention. He wasn't paying attention. Um, and the other artists also basically understood that, yeah, everybody else paid 10%. So that's fair. But it was a brief example of how I was uh, kind of pie in the sky, trying to be fairer than I needed to be to survive. When when you work with Crumb, uh, a, a book just shows up. Uh, does he give you any inkling of what's going to be in there? There's always brand new titles <laughs> and stuff like that. Well. You got to remember, again, this is pre-digital age. There's no email. There's no texting. Expensive Everything's phone calls. done with old, old-fashioned correspondence. Um, I was, I probably spent the majority of my time writing letters uh, back in the day. In fact, all of that stuff went to Columbia, uh, and I never thought to count it. But Karen Green there told me that there were about sixty thousand letters. That's amazing. And Crum um, would always, you know, hand letter his with a rapidograph, and sometimes he'd illustrate them. And so what would happen typically is uh, he would say in advance, hey, I'm working on such and such, and uh, I'll deliver it to you whenever. Sometimes he'd make a promise, and then he wouldn't keep it for various reasons. I remember early on, I think it was probably homegrown, where... It was selling really well, and I was sending him his checks on time, and I thought, wow, I'm really going to impress him, and so I'm going to, you know, get another book quickly. But Crum being Crum, and also having his own socialist leanings, he would spread his books around. And so uh, instead of rewarding a publisher who had done really well with one of his titles, he would say, Nah, I'm going to give the next one to Terry because he needs the money, you know, or so again, it was his own idiosyncratic style of, you know, doing business, if you could even use the word business. But I learned that's the way it worked. So it would be like, basically, okay, when it's my turn, it's my turn. And Robert's going to do what Robert does. Come to an interesting page here where we see this Phil Suling. Uh, you know, your artwork under a Phil Suling ad. How do you connect with Phil Suling? And, and for people at home, this is, a, I don't know, maybe the father of the direct market? Yeah, you know, as, certainly as one of the, the founders of what we think of as the direct market. Yeah, he yeah, did. When, when he, uh, DC comes in involved and stuff. That's right. No, Phil, Phil was really the cornerstone there. He also arguably started the comic conventions. You know, I don't think he was literally the first, but he was the first to, I think, to stick to it and and make it a serious business. Phil adopted me early on in a weird way. Um, 
I think he discovered the Bugle American and he subscribed to it. And in one of the very early issues, keep in mind, when I say I founded two businesses, the Bugle American and Krupp slash Kitchen Sink, these were not flourishing businesses where I got a paycheck every Friday. That, that took a few years to happen. So early on, I'm also freelancing. And uh, one of the other cartoonists in Milwaukee, Jim Mitchell and I, we ran a, a big ad in the Bugle because one thing we could get was free advertising. And basically it was, I think, early December, and it said, hey, help a starving cartoonist uh, for Christmas buy an original drawing. And so, uh, but we described ourselves as starving. So about a week after that ad appeared, a salami came in the mail, a Coney Island salami, and not in a package. It was a salami with a string attached, and on the the string was a label. In those days, I guess you could just send a salami in the mail. And all the tag said was, never let it be said that Phil Suling let a cartoonist starve. <laughs> and so I joke about that, I think, in that ad you pointed to where I think there's a, a postal clerk or somebody bringing me a salami. Yep. So Phil hired me early on to do ads and illustrations for his convention books and so on. And he brought me out in 71 for the first comic convention I ever attended. And that was an important one because I met a lot of the other undergrounders for the first time. And I met Will Eisner for the first time. Yeah, it's going to be an important part of the, the Dennis Kitchen story to talk about that stuff. One of the things that's mentioned here was that as uh, Suling is is you know developing the uh the direct market he wanted to set you up as like the midwest hub of comic distribution you turned it down i did and um a lot of people will say that was insanely stupid and probably was from a strict business point of view I enjoyed distributing other publishers' underground comics. So I was handling Ripoff and Last Gasp and my own out of the Wisconsin warehouse. And Phil said, you've already got the setup. He said, I'm going to be doing business with Marvel and DC, and you can handle those as well. And I said, uh, and this is almost an exact quote, I think I said, Phil, eh, I don't really like those comics anymore. And he said, no, no, listen to me. He said, listen, this is a business opportunity. And he ran it over me again how it would work. And I said, yeah, I get it, but I don't really like those comics, Phil. And he was like going out of his mind. I could just see him shaking his fist and pulling his hair. And he said, what's wrong with you? And uh, for me, distribution was the least interesting least fun of the various hats that i wore of the octopus arms as you showed earlier and so i just didn't want to get into distribution more i didn't want to be the next capital city or diamond i wanted to publish comics and create comics and so i don't regret saying no because i think it would have changed the business and it might have changed me in ways that I don't think would have been for the better. The quote in here uh, from Phil Suling is, is uh, 
Dennis, you don't have to read them. You just got to <laughs> ship them. <laughs> Was that yeah. a uh, So, I mean, in retrospect, what I probably should have done is said, okay, I'm going to hire, you know, another two or three, four guys to handle that, and I'm just going to ignore it, and that'll be part of the cash flow. But, again, for better or worse, it didn't appeal to me. And I probably didn't see how huge it would become either, you know. Um, it just seemed like an additional hassle. And a hassle over... I had by then outgrown those superhero comics, and they just bored me. It's like, I don't want to fill my warehouse with superhero comics. Yeah. You know. It was, you it was emotional. Yeah. You you mentioned attending that, that early comic convention. Did you interact with the Marvel DC artists? Like, did you look at it at all from the business standpoint of like, you guys own your own work? You know, Ed, Ed's talking about Moscoso and, and people like keeping their films, you know, like very much this was your work and you were in control of it. Did you recognize like that's a different model that these, you know, the Jack Kirby's and Jim Starlin's and these guys are, are dealing with? No, absolutely. They were two uh, polar opposites in terms of business models. And yeah, I mean, I had conversations with uh, older guys and, and some contemporaries who worked for the big companies. I mean, the most significant conversation was with Eisner, who, of course, had left mainstream comics and was doing his own educational comics and uh, the Army magazine, PS, and so on. But he had left comic books in part because it wasn't a business model he really liked. And so he was attracted to the underground model because as a creator, he liked the fact that he would own his own copyright. He would get uh, a royalty comparable to the literary world, not the comic book world where most publishers were notorious, you know, ripoff actors. So, yeah, I mean, we would talk... I mean, we, I would go to parties. I'd meet guys who worked in Marvel in D.C. And what it really came down to was this. They would understand that it was better to get 10% of the cover price in theory. But when it actually came down to it, they said, well, what would that translate to? And so I would say, okay, if I printed 10,000 of your comics, here's what you'd get. And they'd go, well, that's nice, but Marvel pays me... $200 a page or whatever the rate was in those. And they said, I can make more money doing the work for higher stuff. And if they were married or had, you know, an expensive apartment, that was the decision right there. It had nothing to do with what's better or fairer. It was bottom line. What am I going to make now? And I could tell them, Hey, if I reprint your book four times, you'll make more. I gave an example of Crumb, which uh, I can't remember what printing Homegrown was in, but I basically said, look, if it goes through eight printings, you'll get X a page, which is way more than Marvel pays you. And they would say, yeah, sure, but it took five years to get to that point. So that was always the revolving conversation. And still is. I'm so happy yeah. to hear this. Yeah. Because this is one of those things we talk about a lot, you know, doing a lot of creator-owned work in this day and age. And we know that you can reprint it. You know, if you do single issues or self-publish and then you move it on to a main publisher, there are these avenues if you own it. And I just wonder how far back those conversations go. So I'm very happy to have this on record. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. We, we we talk about that stuff a lot, you know, where like the Marvel yep. guys, even with the royalty, 
it's still super meager and it's not a royalty they call it an incentive right which implies they don't have to they they're doing you a favor like they can take that away at any time it's it's real corny we're only in 1972. Look at that cover for Bizarre Sex, man. Iconic cover. This this book, we have a P.O. box and people could send us stuff. And and, yeah. and Bizarre Sex, uh, which is this number one? Uh, one yeah. Two. yeah. This has come through our, our offices uh, many times, man. <laughs> well, actually, there's a funny side story to that. Um, as you probably know, that cover is kind of uh, outrageous, but there is nothing inside about it it kind of implies it's a story but there's no story <laughs> so we would get letters periodically or people i'd see at conventions would complain hey where's the rest of the story so just last year oh my goodness. in august i had a big birthday party here and there were a couple of uh, germans here one of them is an editor of the german underground magazine called u comics and uh, when he heard that story, he said, he said, how about we do a special issue with a lot of artists interpreting what happens next after the giant penis breaks <laughs> through that sidewalk in New York? He said, would you object to our doing that? And I said, heck no. In fact, I do a new page for it. So we're putting together a special issue that'll be out this summer. And uh, hopefully we'll find an American publisher who also do it. So it'll be kind of uh, the rest of the story as Paul Harvey would say or that's amazing yeah especially yeah. because like that's the old yeah. story at DC Comics right that will have like a super compelling cover and that's then right. maybe that cover image is playing <laughs> on a television inside one panel of you know the back story the back uh, story yeah. or whatever that's also an example of uh, that cover came to me while I was on acid it just uh I just saw it in my head and I jotted it down on a little notebook, stuck it in my pocket. And the next day it seemed like still a good idea. And that's how it happened. <laughs> you, you don't say. <laughs> Dennis, did you ever do a Freedom of Information Act on yourself, man? I'm looking at this guy running as like a socialist, like lieutenant governor or something. I'm an underground, what was it called? Un underground press syndicate. Like this yeah. sounds like all J. Edgar Hoover buzzwords, man. <laughs> you know, um, my youngest daughter has asked me a number of times why I never requested it, because you can request your Absolutely. file. And uh, no, I still haven't. Um, I, I guess I never thought that I was uh, a danger to uh, <laughs> to the government or anything. I, I, I uh, The only time I thought it might happen was I had a, a girlfriend for a while, uh, Ingrid, who uh, Ingrid the bitch was named after. Uh, she was a member of the Communist Party when I was a, a socialist, and we argued all the time about politics. And she took me one time to a uh, Communist Party picnic, and there were mostly these old people who had, you know, been in the party since the twenties or thirties. And uh, and I remember sitting at the picnic table with her, and she said, "You know, probably uh, uh, several of the people here are informants for the FBI." And then suddenly I went, oh, geez, what am I getting myself into hanging around with communists, you know? So probably that alone started a file, even though I was just visiting and I broke up with her not long afterwards. But, uh, I mean, you're probably right. If they got and stuff I, on, like, John I, Lennon or Muhammad Ali, there's got to be a Dennis Kitchen I'm sure section. There well, is. I, I, yeah, may, maybe I will look. Huh? Well, 
I got a couple of pages on Octobriana, and I feel like <laughs> Dennis Kitchen is probably much much higher up and, in the file. And right. the LSD you were using might have been some of that MK Ultra Ooh. shit. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh, look at this spread, dude! XYZ Comics, freaking Richard Corbin. Yes. And Snarf. That's amazing. How how what kind of contact? How did you meet Richard Corbin? Any Richard Corbin stories? Um. Well, I visited him once in uh, in Kansas City, but otherwise everything was uh, again through the mail. Um, I discovered him through those early uh, fanzines he did. I think Fantagore, maybe. Sure. And uh, he was easy to communicate with. Um, again, I think I probably would have done more with Richard, but he had such a commercially appealing style that. You know, Jim Warren and other people latched onto him right away and made more lucrative offers, I suppose. But we stayed in touch over the years. Uh, I mean, I, I, I remember talking to him uh, just a few years ago when he was named the president of Angoulême, when he got the ultimate honor there. And I joked with him that was he actually going to go to France because he was notoriously a hermit who never left his house, at least it seemed. And he joked that, yeah, he was actually going to go to France, which kind of blew my mind. Um, but yeah, Richard was just a really laid back, cool guy. Um, and I thought Fever Dreams was great. He had such a revolutionary style and, and did his own color seps and stuff. Yep. So, so uh, when it's time to receive the package of Fever Dreams artwork, yep. ex explain what comes for this cover alone. I think with Richard, he actually sent film because okay. he created his own film because he used so many layers in that technique. Like obviously the background with the woman in the clouds or whatever, she's airbrushed. And that spaceship in the foreground, that robotic spaceship is line art. And so they were done on different uh, layers and uh, only he understood his technique at the time. He and uh, Pete Poplaski had two very eccentric, very idiosyncratic ways of coloring, and they were both really great at it, but no one else did it their way. Did did Pete have access? Like, I know that uh, Richard Corbin had access to the stat cameras and, and to lots of materials to, to, like, make that possible. That's that's sort of what aids right. and abets him in becoming that outlier. How about Poplaski? Did, did he have some kind of connection with a print shop or something? Well, later on, we had a big stat camera and he used it, yes. But early on, everything was done with manual overlays. Yeah. When Pete would do a cover, there would be a minimum of a dozen to 15 overlays and sometimes 20 or more um, where he would just have an overlay and he would black or ruby lithin area and he'd say, this is 40% red. And then another one, this is 20% yellow. And in his head he saw how it all come out but it was all abstract because until the printer shot every plate and combined them and we got a proof nobody except maybe pete knew how it would look right and uh so yeah the, the it again today this is alien to your younger viewers who i'm sure think what, what are you talking about overlays and stuff everything's digital now so it's it's an alien concept would Crumb cut his own seps? 
Yes, always. Yeah. Just like Jay Lynch, me. Most most guys cut their own, and if they didn't, or they just thought it was too tedious, then we would do it in-house, and they would approve it. One of the early uh, books that we looked at on the channel in our little show-and-tells was Biju Number 8, one of my favorite mm -hmm. under underground comics ever because of the sort of do-si-do -si -do kind of game that you guys played with one another. Yep. And we made note back then, this is a book in the early 70s. Compare this, in terms of color, with or cartooning for that matter, with any Marvel DC book. And don't even talk about Charlton, Jesus. <laughs> but but the registration and the craft and the care that went into those separations, that's the difference of the actual hand of the cartoonist going in uh, to that package. And as compared to like, you know, the Connecticut housewives or whatever who, who were cutting the Marvel DC, you know, chemical color <laughs> company stuff. It was dramatically different. Different <clears throat> screens were used, so much tighter where you can almost not even see the dots sometimes. Uh, interesting textures on shirts because of the choice of screen that that went into that plate. That plate, just really remarkable stuff. This this uh, Spiegelman cover looks really complicated. It has a painting and and line yep. art as well. Yeah. Just a no, great it's a, it's a, it's astute of you to notice that Ed and uh, again I wish we had done more like Bijou Eight, which was a rare full color underground. The economics just were tough then because to get the benefit of the economics, Marvel and DC were printing in six figures. You know, their minimum print run would have been a hundred thousand and usually several hundred thousand. And for us, you know, again, the largest print runs I might ever consider would be fifty thousand. And you just couldn't get the same price from a printer. Um so for better or worse, that's the way it played out. Even when we were kids in the 90s, I don't think we ever really had aspirations that we would have the opportunity to do color comics. Right. We, we were edging to, to be, you know, doing black and white comics just like our forefathers. You know, the crumbs, the clouds, like, <laughs> like those, those dudes. The O'Bars. Forefathers, huh? Wow. <laughs> James O'Bars. Yeah, that's where we're at now, Dennis. You've been in the game a while. Like, like look, we're, we're over an hour in a conversation. We're only up to 1972, dude. This wow. Is... Yeah. You, well, you know, you're right. It is, it is sobering, though. It is sobering to age and you see the next generation and then, then the next generation. I can remember when I turned uh, roughly 50 and that's when I first started getting questions at conventions that were treating me like an old guy. And I'm like, I'm only 50. And I remember one time I said to somebody, uh, you want to talk about the old days? Ask Will Eisner, who was at the table. <laughs> And I said, if Will doesn't know, he can ask Carl Barks, who was then, you know, pushing 100. And it just seemed distant. There were another couple of generations at least ahead of me. And now, you know, yeah, you get to a certain point where you realize, yeah, I'm, I'm an old guy now. And I think it, it was last week, man, on, I got a comment on... Uh instagram where somebody said oh yeah i've been reading i, I read hip-hop family tree when i was a kid <laughs> <laughs> he said to me man yep. with a straight face dude i'm just 40. Yep. the fuck yeah before long you'll be a gray beard too <laughs> looking through this book this was an astonishing piece man where you're you're pressing records like you are not just a weekly underground you know newspaper publisher comic publisher we're, we're talking buttons one year Christmas card is like the biggest seller that keeps the company afloat. And then you yeah. do, you press records, 78 <laughs> records, which 
weren't being produced for like how long a decade two decades five decades well i mean they died out probably in the mid 50s and so this would have been you know probably close to 20 years or so it was definitely an obsolete speed and an obsolete the 10 inch record itself was obsolete because 45s were i think eight inch and then 33s so it, it, it was insane, but when when um, I convinced Robert and um, his bandmates, Bob Armstrong and uh, Al Dodge, they were playing local gigs, and uh, I love their music, and and I just said to them, I think in a letter probably, I said, why don't, why don't we do a record? And when Robert took me seriously, we joked around, you know, what would it be? And he said, well, we should do a 78, because he and I both were into 78s. And I just, it was as dumb as when Jay Lynch first asked me if I would publish Bijou as well as my own. I just, the dumb part of my brain, the, the, uh, the romantic, let's say romantic instead of dumb. The romantic part said, yeah, let's do a 78. That would be so cool. Well, it took months and months to find a press that was capable of manufacturing it. Uh, because everybody had basically scrapped their presses and, you know, melted them to, you know, save space in, uh, in the record company. But I found an old guy in, in Nashville who had a 78 RPM press literally in a corner of his place covered with tarps. And uh, and he said, well, he'd uh, he'd take off the tarp and dust it off and give it a trial run and see if it still worked. And it did. And at that point, we were in business. It's amazing. And it, this feels like it's foreshadowing sort of where we're at now in in with the music business where it's it's boutique record <laughs> companies that are just making these 5,000 print run art objects as, yep. uh, a, you know, an, an item. So like that, we got hand lettering from, from Crumb, full graphic design from Robert Crumb on, you know, the, the label and all of that, dude, just, just incredible. But it's just one of those things. Like you just imagine that there was some weird record company that handled that. But you look close; it says Krupps. Yeah. And then there would be things like the the buttons that you guys would do. Just there's printing so much different stuff that's not just the comics. There, there's some of the famous car, uh, cartoonist buttons. Jim Mitchell gets one. Yeah, and he was in prison. That's why he's got his uh, prison number on his chest. Wow. He got busted in a drug bust in uh, Mexico. Talk about romantic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dennis, so how, pa how... Page on the left is uh, my pseudo uh, interaction with Crumb, making fun of myself being a publisher, basically. <laughs> and uh, also me talking to Hefner about uh, partying and whatnot. Was... Uh, was uh... Skip Williamson, art director, around that time when you would have not met then. That was that was it's quite a bit later. Okay. How are you balancing your career at this point between publishing distro and being a cartoonist? Basically, publishing was a full-time job. So any drawing that I did would have been in an evening, or if I could carve out time on a weekend. Um, it was tough because. Uh, you know, it's a relatively small company. Uh, I think we never got beyond, uh, 
think 20 employees. So it wasn't a huge operation, but it was very demanding. I could delegate some things, but most of it I couldn't delegate. And uh, I still at the same time had a burning desire to keep doing uh, cartoons. So I would just find time. This is so incredible. Like seeing, you know, the spirit as underground comic. And then you have to sort of play that. The, the cover's the sales mechanism. And we know where these comics are, are going. So you got to kind of play that part up. Get Pigel on there, man. You got to get the titty chicks to, to, to make it exciting for uh, <laughs> for sales purposes. But uh, what a boon to, to get your hands on this. Uh, were the Warren, I guess Warren might have been later, the, the magazines. Yeah. Um the underground spirits were first and they sold well enough that Jim Warren then poked his nose into it. And, uh, apparently he, he called Will and he said, uh, Will, you know, what are you doing working with this little outfit in Wisconsin? He said, I can put you on newsstands. And so basically Will called me and he said, uh, it's been great fun, Dennis, but he said, Warren made me an offer. I can't refuse. But uh, he said, don't worry. Uh, he said, we'll do future business, I promise you. And so for a while, um, Will did business with Jim Warren. And I think they did uh, 16 issues that were on newsstands. And they were probably selling 100,000 plus. And then I think sales started to wane. And I think also, you know, Jim Warren's not the easiest guy in the world to get along with. And so I think a combination of sale declining and uh, Warren driving Will crazy, Will called me back after probably a couple of years, and he said, uh, "He said, how do you like to pick up the magazine?" He said, "You think there's any life left in it?" And I said, "Oh yeah, I think so." Uh, because I was focused on the direct market and what remained of the head shop market, whereas Warren was dependent on newsstands and. You know, that's a whole other business. Let's not get started. Uh, <clears throat> Did the other underground artists respond to Will Eisner's work? Yes, I would say most were fans of Will's work because, I mean, he was just such a great cartoonist. But I think some question whether he belonged with us because different generation it was stories from the 40s early 50s i think i got some pushback for it but i mean i mean harvey kurtzman started doing stuff too for the undergrounds and it was a little bit different because mad was a more direct progenitor of undergrounds than say the spirit was they were both really widely admired but Harvey kind of fit better and so that's why Harvey was considered the kind of the father of underground comics or as he insisted he was the father-in-law because uh, <laughs> it sounded funnier uh, so you know I mean I thought they were both amazing cartoonists and amazing people but Harvey did fit better uh, Harvey would even you know sit and smoke pot with the guys Will would Oh no, not for me. There's Will was more Will's more straight laced, but from a business point of view, Will completely fit in, and he got it, and he took advantage of it. And uh, basically, you know, Harvey was not well known as a business guy, so he 
made his deal with Hef for better or worse for the rest of his career. There's that great, I guess it's a Victor Moscoso Super 8 film or something. Mm -hmm. You see it in the Crumb documentary. You see a little bit in even the Spain Rodriguez joint. You see it in Comic Book Confidential where it's a jam. Uh, everybody's working on their panel. Yep. I, th I think it might be science fiction funnies. I think so. Yeah, big one. I think Avengers. it was 16 millimeter film. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and Kurtzman's there. Like these guys are getting fucked up. You see, you see, you see Robert Crumb fall on his face. You see S. Clay Wilson playing with some chicks cleavage, and yep. and then you see this dude with wraparound sideburns, who's like the chaperone. He he's got his head down. He's working on his panels. Well, the all this all this nonsense. Yeah, no, that's classic footage. Uh, classic. It was very far-sighted for Victor to arrange to have a well, a camera guy there. I, I don't know who took it, but it was it was one of the rare contemporary glimpses of any length. I mean, I was taking eight millimeter footage back then too but it was short you know minute or two here maybe I, I i wasn't a professional filmmaker i was just taking my hobby camera around and there's some interesting snippets but his is professional and, and he he holds on to that for dear life he licenses it and he just like lets a little piece out here let a little piece there you watch maybe three four documentaries you get to see a couple new scenes victor digitize that shit man <laughs> That's a smart business. Yeah, well, there. yeah, Vic, Victor's uh, definitely a, a sharp uh, businessman. Rare, rare for our generation of cartoonists. How does Harvey get into this landscape, man? Do you introduce him? I mean, I know he, no, I know he published. No, no, no. Go back to Help Magazine. Yeah, sure. He discovered Crumb basically, and he was publishing Jay and Skip and uh, Joel Beck, Gilbert and, Shelton, uh, sure. and Gilbert Shelton. Yeah, man. You so think, you think Kurtzman could tell uh, Eisner about Jim, Jim Warren a little bit? You would think, but uh, yeah, you know. Again, yeah. I mean, you got to give Warren his due. He had a he had a good eye for talent too, and he was uh, for a while he had a really good thing going. I I don't knock him. Uh, Jim Warren actually offered me a job once, and I I. Uh, I took an interview with him, and uh, this was in New York City, of course, around '73, I think, just before com just before comics book, because he heard I was going to do this comics book experiment with Stan Lee, and he said, "Come and talk to me first. So I went and I took the interview, and it was in the morning, and I went into his office, and he had a middle-aged secretary who came in and uh, and Jim said uh, you want some coffee Dennis and I said I said sure sounds good and he said uh, you want cream with that and I said sure so she leaves the office she comes back with two coffees sets them down and they're both black and he looks at him and he said he said cream and he pounded his desk and I she was like you know okay went back to cream but that moment I saw that flash of his temperament and I don't even remember how the rest of the interview went because I, I remember thinking, I don't want to work for this asshole. I mean, the way he treats her, you know. So that's the way life goes sometimes. I mean, had he been kind to his secretary, who knows? I might end up working for Warren for a while. But uh, 
It's all those different paths, you know? You know something, when uh, when the uh, Spirit Magazine comes back to you and you pick up the numbering and things, we've we got a couple of issues floating around here. And uh, he is, at least the issue that, that I have uh, that, you know, is super early on, uh, it has essays that are part of of comics and sequential art. Like, did he did he basically serialize that in the Spirit Magazine? Yes, that was his intent. Um so it gave new material to the magazine, but in the back of his mind, he knew it would eventually be a book. Because that's how Wolf thought. And was that a poorhouse press? Uh, it was like yes. some other imprint. So did, did you help him set that kind of thing up? Or he's always been in the game mm. a little bit. I think it was poorhouse press uh, all along. I mean, eventually... Uh, but isn't that self-published? I mean, Is that his own deal? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's because... Will always wanted to keep a little foot in publishing just to just to have a sense of what the market was like so he could deal with what he would call bellwether accounts who could give him uh, feedback on, on the market. And he would always pick my brain too. He was, sometimes he would just call and he wouldn't want to talk about the market. And, uh, and if I would say something and he might say, well, the shopping's connected, he told me it's not that way and i would have to then defend my position and go well i don't know about the shopping's connectedy but in my experience and so that's how he would gauge the market by just picking brains and uh, everyone of course wanted to talk to will but at the end of the day he didn't want to publish because that was something you know again this is like me you know do you want to be an artist or do you want to be a publisher but he wanted just enough to not be bamboozled to, to know what the market was like or to be able to walk in a convention and and know other retailers and distributors and be able to have conversations with them. He relished that. That's so forward thinking. Yeah. And that's a piece of Will Eisner that I feel like we don't hear discussed as much as when you maybe we should. Yeah, when you study him, like it, it all comes clear, the PS magazine stuff. Like a lot of this is his genesis. You know, he's he's the starting point. And then finds a, finds a way to make comics work. It, it always shocks me that like there's so few people that do it, you yeah. know. And especially at that time period, you would think some of his peers, some of the other people that he's having these conversations with, would have recognized, yes, this is a better alternative than the Marvel DC model. It's a different oh. it's a different skill set. I mean, eventually we'll have to get to Tundra and things like that. And like you, you got it or you don't, <laughs> you know. Well, there were a handful, I think, who maybe thought like, well, I would I would throw, a, for instance, Gil Kane out there when Gil did uh, His Name is Savage and uh, what was the other one? Something Hawk? B Black Mark? Yeah, Black Mark. Black Mark. I mean, so he was trying. The difference is Gil's didn't succeed. And uh, I think he was a little bitter about that. But he was another smart guy who was, uh, I would say, ahead of the curve. Where does Wits End fall into this? Well, there's a good example where Wally Wood, uh, his mantra was that artists are their own best editors, which is not true, <laughs> in my opinion. But he set out to prove it because I think he resented uh, being told what to do. You know, he famously, like a lot of the EC guys, he sparred with Harvey Kurtzman because Harvey was a pretty dictatorial editor. And... Uh, so he chafed under that, as you can imagine. Um, Adele Kurtzman, Harvey's uh, wife, told me one time in the 
this would have been the early 50s when uh, Wally Wood and Harvey were doing stuff for MAD. And she said Wally would come to their house. This is when Harvey was working out of his house, not the EC office. And he said Wally would come to the door, unfailingly polite. He'd say, hi, Adele. How are you? You look great. Where's Harvey? And she would point to whatever his home office was. The door would close, and then she would hear yelling, fighting, screaming. <laughs> then eventually the door would open, Wally would come out. Hi, Adele. It's nice to see you. I'll see you again next week or whatever. So they would literally scream at each other, but Harvey always won because he had the last word. And so I think that was the genesis of Wit's End, was Wally said, I'm going to do it my way. But if you look back at Wally's career, I think most people would agree the very best stuff he did was when he worked with Harvey. I've always said that. Like, Harvey Kurtzman made cartoonists out of these incredible illustrators and, and, and sort of wrangled them, turned them into storytellers rather than just yep. really fun picture makers. And and it's all over, like, behind us. You see the EC books, man. The Ross Cochran joints. Like, it's, it's so evident and clear in there. 73 is a crazy year because uh, the bloom is coming off the rose a bit. And there's this little um, passage right here talking about XYZ where in lieu of three grand worth of royalties that Crumb was owed, uh, he was sent 11,000 copies of Homegrown and XYZ, quote, to be sold at a San Francisco shop where he had a financial, financial interest. Like, Crumb was invested in well, a comic shop? Well, to be clear, that was a shop owned by Terry Zwigoff the guy who you now probably know as the director of the Crumb movie and and uh, Bad Santa. Yes, that guy. So uh, in that sense, Crumb was, uh, had a financial interest. But basically, 73 was what we call the crash of 73, where the market just kind of fell apart and we thought we'd go out of business and just barely survived. So Yeah, look at this right here, man. One of the few bright spots at the end of the year. First crust. Krupp uh, Christmas cards sold so well, they became the biggest moneymaker of that year for the company. <laughs> Christmas cards. That's right. And it was at and the end of the year. ordinary Christmas cards, right. They were they were hip, uh, you know, vaguely drug-related and stuff that appealed to people who walked into a head shop. So imagine if you're a hippie in 1973 and you go into a head shop to get, you know, your rolling papers and your underground comics and a bong. And you see a rack of Christmas cards and you do a double take and you realize they're aimed at your demographic. They're not they don't have Jesus on them. They're not they're not mainstream Hallmark Christmas cards. And so you go, hey, I can send those to my peers. And so they did and they were hugely popular. We did them for several Christmases in a row. So it was, again, a way of thinking out of the box. So how do we use this cartooning talent and humor that's not necessarily that stapled pamphlet we call a comic book? And and would stuff like these Christmas cards, would they be wholesaled? See, I, I just, I'm so stuck yeah. in, in, com in comics where, where yeah. e even in like the 80s, there's, you know, a bunch of different distributors. Like during this head shop time, would stuff like your comics and these Christmas cards be in some kind of catalog from some wholesaler that's also selling bongs and stuff like that? Probably. 
although I think most of those went direct to the shops. We would have uh, prepackaged sets. We'd have a, uh, a a POP, you know, a point of purchase display that would uh, be pre-made with slots. And so I think it would show eight different cards and maybe you had a dozen or 20 of each card. And so they would come in a package at a set wholesale price, probably 50% of retail. So the shop could just take it out of the box, put it on the counter and you didn't have to do anything except take money until the day after Christmas. And then, you know, so we dealt with, sure, wholesalers at the time. There was an outfit called Adam's Apple in Chicago, a place called Stone Blue in Minneapolis, and probably a half a dozen around the country. We also, for a while, we had our own truck. We bought a a used paddy wagon that I think the Milwaukee Police Department auctioned off. And we hired a guy and he drove around to shops directly in probably anywhere from central Wisconsin down to Chicago. And I can't remember, but we had a certain radius that he would actually deliver to. So probably scared the shit out of this, yeah, this yeah. head shops, man, when that old Ru- paddy wagon Ru- pulled in. Ruined a Everybody couple just of running out. <laughs> so, uh, so the advantage to a retailer was uh, obviously the shipping would be free and a guy would literally carry it into your shop. And uh, and so for a while that worked, and I think it might have worked better, but uh, the first couple of drivers we hired were kind of flaky and uh, unreliable. And again, I don't want to disparage hippies because I was one of them, but a lot of them were flaky. They They... We would always say, look, you can get high after work, man, but when you're doing the job, you, you got to be straight, you know, got to make sure everything goes to the right place. You collect a check, whatever. And uh, it wasn't easy to get what I would call reliable nine to five hippie employees. <laughs> <laughs> so We're at the Marvel era, Jimmy. Yeah. How does the uh, connection with Stan Lee come about? You're making a deal with the devil, aren't you? You could say that. Um, it all started when uh, Mom's Number One came out. I sent complimentary copies to various people. And while I did disparage Marvel earlier, when I started out as a teenager and into my college years, I loved Marvel. And I thought what Stan was doing to revive Marvel was really cool. I loved what he did with Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Doctor Strange. Uh, I loved uh, Steve Ditko and, uh, you know, a lot of the guys on the, in, in the bullpen. And so so basically, I thought nothing of sending him a complimentary copy with a, with a brief cover letter just saying, hey, I'm a fan. I hope you enjoy. And to my astonishment, I got a letter back. And then, of course, I replied and he replied and we ended up being pen pals. And... As I was sending him more things, I think he started to see something going on there where, again, I think he saw maybe a young version of himself, somebody who could edit and put together comics and he could use somebody like that in the bullpen. So he offered me a job and I thanked him, but I said, no, I'm not interested. I got my own gig and I'm having fun. And so he would say, all right, you dope, keep doing what you're doing. And then a few months later, he would call and offer me a job again. And again, for kind of the same reason that I said no to Phil Suling. 
I liked what he was doing, but that wasn't, I didn't want to work for someone else. I had my own operation and it was fun. Nobody told me what to do. I didn't want a boss. So all of that changed when the crash of 73 came and we're literally falling apart. And suddenly I, I thought, I don't know if I can pay the rent next month. Uh, so I called Stan and I said, hey, you know, you still got an opportunity for me there? And he said, you bet. So he flew me out to New York. And I explained to him that I was willing to work for him conditionally. And that I was willing to do a magazine that would use these young artists that he was kind of superficially aware of. And uh, we would use Marvel's distribution. But I said, I don't want to move to New York. I'll do it out of Wisconsin. Um, that'll save you some office space. But I said, you know, the artists are also accustomed to keeping their own art. So you got to return art. And we're accustomed to our own copyrights. And so there were things that in a normal negotiation, I never would have gotten what I wanted. But it was perfect timing in a sense for me because the original publisher of Marvel and that whole corporation, Martin Goodman, had retired, moved to Florida, and he made Stan the publisher. So Stan suddenly had authority and power that he didn't have as just the editor. And so Stan the publisher basically caved to what I wanted because I think it was important to him to introduce something fresh to Marvel at a time when he was also doing the college circuit. So here's a guy, Stan must have been in his 40s then, and he's talking to 20-year-olds because suddenly Marvel is cool. And he's cool, but he's 40-something. So by doing comics book, it was a way of showing that audience, hey, I'm dealing also with the 20-somethings. And uh, I'm giving them a lot of freedom, and I'm putting them on newsstands. So that's how it started. Such a great photo, too, man, to, il to illustrate the fact. Yeah, I love seeing all the vintage photos. <laughs> yeah. Two issues of that came through, came through Marvel. Uh, no, Marvel published three. Oh, okay. And there were two in the can, so Kitchen Sink published the last two. There were uh, five. I see. I see. The earliest glimmers of uh, Mouse get the reprint in a comics book. Really a fascinating little time period, and the way it fits into the history with the bust, as you called it, and uh, you know where underground comics in the direct market grow. What do you think uh, causes that bust in 73, Dennis? It was a combination of two things. Uh, first of all, remember, we were selling to shops on a non-returnable basis. And so if a head shop ordered, uh, let's say, 100 assorted comics and uh, maybe the Crumb and the Freak Brothers and some of the popular titles would sell right away, but a handful of them wouldn't sell right away and after a number of customers would take them off the rack flip through them they'd get dog-eared and a little wrinkled and then nobody would want to buy them and so they were clogging the rack and there were probably a few exceptions but most of those head shop owners comics were just another product and uh, if you had a pipe and it didn't sell the first month you'd sell it the next month or the third month but it would sell because a pipe's a pipe a comic that gets dog-eared and bent, nobody wants. 
and they didn't know what to do with them. I, you know, they didn't have like a bargain table or something. And so when the racks would get clogged, they would just stop ordering. Mm. And so that was part of it. The real critical thing was, though, in 73, there was a Supreme Court decision. I think it was California versus Miller that basically redefined obscenity. And uh, the judges kind of passed the baton and they said that it was up to local communities to determine what was obscene. And of course, in retrospect, that was a crazy decision because their argument was, you know, well, what's uh, what's okay in Los Angeles is not going to be okay in, uh, you know, Podunk, Kansas. And so the people in Kansas should be able to draw a line differently than those perverts in L.A. But what it really did in our industry was it threw a scare into the head shops because keep in mind, in the 70s, if you had a head shop, you were probably not very popular in your neighborhood with the larger business community. You were probably looked at askance at least and unwelcome <laughs> at most because your clientele is going to be the long-haired unsavory crowd that they probably uh, would rather went elsewhere you were clearly selling drug related things even if you said these are tobacco devices right. and so there was a push to get head shops out of the community and ordinances started getting passed restricting them so the last thing a head shop wanted was suddenly that comic rack was going to get them in trouble because suddenly a cop or a prosecutor could walk in and say hey we think those are obscene we're shutting you down and so there was a great fear we had a lot of shops especially in small communities that said i just can't carry them anymore i'm scared and besides the obscene part there was also the part where let's say you were in an area where you were not supposed to sell drug-related material and you said, I'm selling tobacco products. People put tobacco in these bongs. People roll up tobacco in these papers. But then at the same time, you've got the Freak Brothers and Dope Comics. How can you really deny that you're really catering to a drug-consuming audience? So, so that combination of factors made uh, 1973 a terrible time for us to uh, to try to do business. There must have been a glut of just just awful fucking comics too, man. Like uh, yes, I, I think somewhere in here you say that there was a, a whole publisher that their entire their brand was crumb ripoff type uh, comics. Right, and so again, if you didn't have an eye, and not everybody's like us, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> Comic is a comic is a comic. Right, a comic is a comic. And so if those didn't sell, then they would just go, yeah, comics aren't selling anymore. Here's that checklist for the uh, famous uh, cartoonist button set that was put together. You hand-pressed these things, huh? Well, not necessarily me, but yes, we we handmade them. And uh, that was another fun one because I got to communicate with a lot of the great cartoonists I didn't necessarily know. Some of these names, man, you go deep. You got Vince Fago, the the classic like pre-Marvel uh, funny an, animal, funny animal cartoonist. <clears throat> and I see some names here I don't even know, man. I'm not even gonna front. Number six, Fairshid Barracucha. Yeah, he was French. Yeah, see, I'm so ignorant. Yeah, it's an amazing collection of talent. That's a very cool oh. idea. 
Number six is actually the most fun for me. Number six alphabetically should have been Ernie Bushmiller, but I couldn't get Bushmiller's permission. And so I put Saul Brodsky in, who <laughs> hardly anybody heard of, but he was a cartoonist I got to know because when I was working with Stan Lee, he was Stan's assistant. And so I plugged him into that alphabetical slot when Bushmiller, for whatever reason, wouldn't respond to my permission letter. That's a days too, man. You could just go to Connecticut and probably knock off about 15 out of this list. <laughs> That's true. Uh, it, if I had lived in New England, then I absolutely would have. But it was a long drive from Milwaukee. So uh, the 76th chapter is, it's it's called uh, uh, Signs of Life, and 75 was digging out of the hole. So so that little period before the direct market get, finds more sure footing, and it's after the head shops, like, like, how do you dig out of that hole? Well, part of it was there was a steady transition from the head shop market to the direct market comic shops. Nice. From the beginning, we talked about Gary Arlington, but Gary Arlington was literally a one of a kind for a while. And then you had a handful of shops and we would sell to those handful of shops. I mean, notably Bud Plant and his partners had uh, a small chain in the in the Bay Area. And so they would pop up and we'd deal with them, but it wasn't really until Phil Suling and then his competitors started really catering to what became a burgeoning market where comic shops were exploding and there ended up being, you know, two or 3000 or so of them. And that was ultimately a bigger market than the head shops. And so we made that transition. That's so interesting to know, man, especially when you hear about the, like the, uh, the numbers for the, the early underground comics and when the comic shops come up, if that's a, if that's a better market, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty sexy. Dennis, does it change your outlook on what you're publishing and what you value as a publisher, you know, once the comic shops start to enter? Yeah, there's that idea of ground level uh, co comics of like, you know, the star reaches and things like that. Well, clearly, yeah, it did change things, right? Suddenly you had a thing called ground level, which wasn't a term anybody had ever heard of before. I was still doing undergrounds until the late 70s. I think I'd have to look at the dates, maybe 79 or so, maybe even 1980. But they were, I think at the end, we were only maybe doing 5,000 of some of them. It was harder because the comic book shops mainly started because the owner was a fan of mainstream comics. They might have liked Undergrounds, but more likely they started because they were Marvel DC guys. And so it was never a given that we would be in every shop. I think at one point, doing some kind of an informal survey, we figured we were probably in about one third of the comic shops with the bulk of our line. Most of the rest, we either not curious at all, or they might only carry the spirit or something that was, you know, going to appeal more to the average comic book fan than the average underground comic fan. I never made the connection that ground level is, you know, like that name comes from underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, we, we hear that 
so many of these phrases and then don't think <laughs> about their entomology. Man, we we really are breezing along here, we, dude. We're, we're coming up. It's a it's like an hour and a half. I I think I think we're we're gonna have to do this again, Dennis. Like the the career is just too expansive, and there's so much to talk about, and and there's so much more to, like to get to. We're not gonna be able to get it yeah. in 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 one one sitting here. This Fox River pa Patriot thing, like that that's another week. That's another like adjacent publication that you had, and it was weekly, right? Uh, yeah, I, 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 that came about because in 73, I moved from Milwaukee to upstate Wisconsin to a, a rural area. I literally bought a, what was a farm. My first wife wanted to be back to the land and it turned out she wanted to be back to the land for all of about, uh, a year because, uh, she then split and, uh, the guy who wasn't interested in moving to the country ended up with the farm and she went back to the city so it's one of life's little ironies but once i was up there and i got to know people in the community obviously and one of the other co-founders of the, the the bugle was living in that area and we decided uh, that what we were doing with the bugle we would do but for more of a rural audience and kind of that same back to the land youngish I don't want to say hippie in this context, but there were a lot of people of my generation who really did want to go back and uh, be in the in a, in a rural setting and, and have gardens or, or 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 have livestock and that whole kind of Mother Earth movement. And so the Fox River Patriot was aiming at that audience, and it was wider in the sense that it covered probably. Uh, the majority of the state it wasn't something that would get distributed in milwaukee or madison but in the smaller communities and so it was successful in fact uh and it lasted for many years long after i broke up my partnership with that particular fellow but it was an opportunity for me to also do covers illustrations advertisements even and it it plugged me into the community in a way that I thought was uh, helpful. Uh, for example, if you're publishing underground comics and you're in a town of 1400 people and you want to get a loan from a bank, uh, it's not that easy to walk into a bank and say, give me some money. Uh, by the way, ignore the hair down past my shoulders and my scraggly beard. But it's easier to say, hey, I published this uh, regional paper you may be familiar with. And they go, oh, yeah, you're part of the community. We'll loan you money. The, so the model of something like this, is it it's it's uh, local ads that kind of keep that thing floating? Yes. Yeah. Because you notice it says free on the cover. And sure. uh, so, yeah, it was ad supported. I think at a certain point we charged for it. The same with the Bugle. It was always, again, the business model of if it's free, you have a higher circulation. And so advertisers are happy. But if you don't make enough revenue and you go, okay, we got to charge a quarter, you're going to sell fewer, but at least you get the cash to supplement the advertising. And it would go back and forth. I think the Bugle probably flipped a half a dozen or so times. And each time it survived until the very end. So 
There's something to be said for each model. Check this out real quick, man. The the, uh, the Spirit Magazine 2021-22 serializing, presumably a graphic novel. Uh, Contract with God is out. So that would be an interesting thing to hear your thoughts on. Uh, but uh, Life on Another Planet one, uh, 234, uh, there must have been plans of collecting that as a book. With the idea, contract of God with God was that was that the original model? How how was that received uh, in in the 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 culture? Was did did uh, did Will Eisner do do well with that? Um, it was I know it was a smaller publisher. Was it another self published thing? No no no. You mean uh, Life in Another Planet? Uh, no no. Uh, so contract with God comes out before this, before oh. Life on Another Planet. No, oh, you want to talk about contract with God? Yeah, and the impetus for you know collecting these future works like Life on Another Planet and some of that other stuff. Well, two different things. Got to remember, first of all, contract with God is kind of a, a watershed moment in comics history because it was the first successful what we'd call a graphic novel. There had been two or three precedents you could point to. I mean, Kurtzman's Jungle Book arguably was one of the first. There was one called Rhymes with Lust that came out around 1950 or so Matt Baker by Matt Baker and uh, I forget the writer offhand. But those were, those were wonderful experiments, but they totally flopped commercially. And so unless you are a serious comics aficionado, they just kind of came and went. The difference with Contract with God was it actually, it had some tread, it stuck, it, it, it got recognized, it became uh, popular and successful in a way that none of the predecessors did. So uh, it was published by an outfit called Baronet. And when Will first told me about it, I was very excited because I loved the whole concept of it. But he said, no disrespect, Dennis, but he said, this project has to be published by someone on Park Avenue in New York, not someone at Number Two Swamp Road in Central Wisconsin, <laughs> which is the actual address, right? Yeah, Number yeah. Two. Swamp Road. <laughs> so, uh, so I understood. He he wanted a a real publisher based in New York, and he went to various places, and nobody took him seriously because to them it was just a comic book with more pages. And they said, yeah, we, we don't do comic books well. But Baronet was a company founded by two or three friends of his, and uh, they were a fledgling operation. And uh, basically, the truth be told, it was kind of a subsidized publishing because Will said, I will invest in your company if you will publish my book. And so they said, sure, invest some money. We love your book. So that's how it got published. And uh, it didn't do, uh, I mean, gangbusters. First of all, it was a small publishing house. It didn't have the kind of reach that, you know, a Simon & Schuster or somebody would have had. But it was sex successful enough, and it got a lot of attention, certainly in the comics industry. And it uh, blew the minds of a lot of people in the comics industry and changed their careers like Frank Miller's talked about this, Alan Moore's talked about it, others. It was recognizably a game changer because 
suddenly you didn't have to limit your stories to like 32 pages or whatever the max you could squeeze into a comic book typically probably closer to 20 pages you could tell a story in however many pages it took and you could put a square binding on it you could put it in your library and you could read the title suddenly it automatically gave some respect to a genre that or a medium that had no respect earlier comics were probably the least respected communication medium you know you could think of i mean for example i mean the the the, the science fiction people were kind of distant cousins but they looked their nose down at comics some of them read comics but yeah it was kind of looked at as kid stuff parents teachers anybody they had no respect for comics suddenly Here's something with a square binding. It's about serious topics. It's mostly about New York in the 30s. It's semi-autobiographical. And people realized, wow, there's an untapped potential here that hasn't been taken advantage of. And it hasn't been the same since, as we all know. Now, graphic novels are everywhere. That's the truth, man. And I think that's a great place to leave. I actually this have one more yeah, question before we wrap up. Um, Dennis, you mentioned a couple times about uh, like editing and you know thinking that artists they need an editor. Were you doing much editing up to this point with underground cartoonists that you published? Yes and no. Er, I mean, early on, yeah, I was editing was uh, was one of the hats I wore. But for a lot of these things, I mean, you can put editing in quotes. For example, Crumb sent homegrown funnies. I didn't send it back and say change page two or. I mean, you published it as is if it was somebody who obviously knew what they were doing. The editing came mostly in terms of uh, putting together anthologies or uh, sometimes it would be as basic as uh, spell checking. Uh, at a certain point, I'd have to go back and look at a year. Dave Schreiner, who wrote the book you're flipping through. Yeah. Dave became my first full-time editor, and Dave was a guy I went to journalism school with, and he was also one of the co-founders of The Bugle. So I had known Dave literally since uh, we're probably both 19 or 20, and uh, he became an outstanding editor. So he was always what I would call the primary editor, but I also worked with him. So a lot of it was collaborative and uh uh, but I was happy to be able to delegate editing per se to Dave because he was so good at it. Uh, not all artists wanted to be edited either. I mean, a perfect example is Spain sent something to us and uh, it had uh, two or three misspellings in it. And uh, so I carefully corrected them, mimicked his lettering, pasted it over, went to press. And then when he got his art back, he said, hey, man. You fucked with my lettering. And I said, well, Spain, you misspelled a few words. And he said, don't fuck with my spelling. That's proletarian spelling. It's like, okay. <laughs> I will not correct your spelling anymore. Sorry, Spain. So, again, in so many ways, it wasn't a typical operation. So, I, I, editing, I, I think, has to have quotes around it. Yeah, I think it's an under-discussed topic when it comes to making comics. So uh, I'm happy to yeah. happy to hear you weigh in on it a bit. 
You good? I am. Dennis, right. this is a very important conversation to get on the record, and we and we simply must do it again. We got we got twenty three right. more years to cover, and I'd like to cover <laughs> as much next time as 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 possible. Like get you fully caffeinated, get that breakfast in you, and like do it do it again for another round because I sounds I, good. I think things are really going to accelerate through this nineteen eighties period. Uh, let's take one more shot at uh, the creatures from the subconscious, the newest book that Dennis has out there with these free form. Uh, illustrations that are just freaking immaculate but you got a lot of stuff going on that that website why don't you give people the url and whatever else you have going on these days sure it's just denniskitchen.com dennis with one n and uh i'm also on instagram and uh we're going to be uh in fact uh i've got a warehouse full of stuff that i'm just starting to describe and uh and put up so anybody who's unfamiliar with the uh, the web store uh, Dennis Kitchen Archives, we're calling it. Uh, we're going to be steadily adding some of the stuff we're talking about. There's things I'm finding that are going back to the 70s or so that we'll steadily be putting on. So I may only have a couple or I may have a half a carton, but anybody who's interested, uh, that stuff will start to become familiar or, I mean, available until we run out. That sounds amazing. So, and I think we're going to have to have a conversation as soon as we <laughs> stop this recording. <laughs> Well, don't wait so long that I'm too old to remember anything, but uh, <laughs> I look forward to doing it again. 